Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hello again. That's We're that's still... actually a that's a flop. Did you know that? I did know that. I'm trying to shake it up a little bit. Shaking it up. <laughs> well, Christina, what have you been listening to this week? We're not in spooky season anymore, so I'm I'm fascinated to hear where we're going. We're not in spooky season, but I kind of still I, I I was spooky season adjacent. Okay. But also it works with what's happening tonight. So tonight our show is technically a sequel. Okay. Right. So I thought, okay, well then I should listen to a musical sequel. But I wanted to listen to something that was successful. And so I went and listened to Wicked. Oh, interesting. I actually went looking for a different cast album because I realized I had never heard anything besides the original Broadway cast album because... Really, I mean, what else you listen to, right? Right. And I've heard like Carrie Ellis sing with Queen when she does Divine Gravity with Queen. And that's like one of the most spectacular things. And I heard her alphabet was insane. Yeah. Um, And so like, I was like, oh, maybe there's a London cast recording. That would make sense. There's not. No, it's so weird, right? There are no other cast recordings, but there is the 15th anniversary which I love. I I was going to ask, is that the one you listen to? Okay. It is. So what do you love about the 15th anniversary? Because I love this recording. One thing I learned, because I'm I'm getting to hear other, other actors approach the work, and also, like, I saw Wicked on Broadway, but I was really young. I think I was 17 at the time, you know? So, like, mm-hmm. that was the last time I saw Wicked. And I picked up on a lot of the adult content that I guess I'd never consciously considered before. And like listening to Adam Lambert and Carrie Ellis saying, then Mika and Ariana Grande did their own version of popular with new lyrics and everything. Mm-hmm. And that was so fun. I was like, this is a great song. And I also love the pentatonics. Okay. That was Amazing doing what is this feeling? And that was so interesting to listen to because it's all vocal percussion and it's 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 vocal instrumentalization. And yeah, I don't know. I just really I found it to be a lot of fun. It was fun to like look at the show through a new lens and kind of like let go of that first impression you get when you're a teenager and it's all exciting and everybody loves it and it's the most right. popular musical. Um And yeah, it was just fun. It's always fun to hear other people's points of view on such iconic material, right? And especially now that we've had the recent announcement of Cynthia Erivo and Ariana Grande in the movie, which is going to be epic. And if we don't get Bianca Del Rio's Matamorable, look, I'm just saying. But yeah, yeah, I it was fun to like approach it from that. And also it's so successful. And our show tonight is based on a successful first musical. Right with the expectation that it would have been another hit it out of the park moment. So I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting parallel. Oh, I love that. I love that you revisited Wicked. I love that you listened to that recording. It is so weird for a musical that prolific and popular, Mm. not to, you know, 
popular. <laughs> um, but that there's not like a London cast recording and there's not, you know, there's not official like full-blown recordings of the show, but there's a lot of supplemental material. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if it's on the 15th or it might have been one of the earlier like anniversary recordings where... um like Stephanie J. Block sings Making Good and... Yes, I wanted to listen to that because she sings it with Stephen Schwartz. Right, yeah. But it wasn't on the Spotify okay. thing for some it reason. Might, it might be a different anniversary, possibly. Maybe. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it. there is some really interesting stuff out there for mm-hmm. a show that doesn't have like The Lion King. Like you can buy all sorts of recordings of The Lion King, but yeah. not Wicked. Anyways, that's what I listened to. Bobby, what did you listen to this week? Well, we both took the same note. I, you know, I, <laughs> you know, in I love that in Act Two, we are really trying to theme our what are you listening to's, you know, and this musical, we're talking about a sequel. And so I wanted to listen to a sequel and I had to be careful because a lot of musical sequels have not done well. And I Mm -hmm. want to make sure that we can cover them on this podcast. So (laughs) I picked one that I don't think we'll ever cover because it wasn't produced. Um, I have an extremely rare demo recording to it that people in the fandom have fought me to say that doesn't exist, that they think I'm a liar. And the whole like me finding it is a story for another day. But (laughs) I have it. It's real. And it is... A sequel, because multiple have been written, to the Rocky Horror Picture Show that was known as Revenge of the Old Queen. Uh, It was rewritten to be a movie sequel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Technically, part three of a trilogy, because hashtag there is actually a movie sequel that already exists. And people will fight me for saying that because they're like, it's not a sequel. It's an equal because it's really the continuing adventures of Brad and Janet. But that's, that's the story for a podcast. But... This third version, uh, I believe, was written in the 1990s by Richard O'Brien as a film. He composed songs for it. The plot is kind of weird and meta. It exists in a world where the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a movie in the universe of the film based on true events that happened. It's really hard to follow, but basically Frankenfurter's mother, the old queen, she doesn't know that Frank died. And Riff Raff, you know, went back because him and Magenta go back at the end of the first one. And somehow Magenta has died. I think Riff Raff might have killed her. That's it's really dicey what happened. But anyways, right. the old queen finds out Frank is dead and is like, I'm not having this. So she's coming to Earth and to find out what happened to her son, the prince right. of, you know, the planet. And Janet exists. Her son is a pop star who is like androgynous. So probably uh-huh. the son of Frankenfurter and her right. weirdly sing songs about Transylvania. Like, cause that's like, he's feeling it or I don't know. And the FBI is involved and Brad has a brother who is like upset because Brad is dead at this point. Anyway, I listened to the demo. There are a couple songs. One of them is called the moon drenched shores of Transylvania, which is one of Janet's sons songs his pop songs another one is called never let your daughter date an alien uh and it's like a whole diner of rednecks being like they're gonna take our jobs those aliens from transsexual transylvania um oh you were making faces uh <laughs> riff raff sings a song called the short end of the stick about how he just never gets what he wants in life the son also sings a song i think it's the son 
called The Rocky Road to Love. And it's it's a song that takes place while he's driving on the freeway. Bobby, this plot sounds like a COVID fever dream. Like, like we need to make this movie, right? No. <laughs> no, I understand why it wasn't made. <laughs> it's real. I'm not making it up. Like, I understand why it's not greenlit. I mean, it almost did. <laughs> anyway, I think we t- should move on at this point, yeah. right? Okay. Let's, let's give them the clues, Bobby. <laughs> All right. I think you should start the clues this week. Okay, I'm on it. All right. Clue number one that was said at the end of the last episode was... Bobby has mentioned this show 18 times on this podcast, and this musical is a Thanksgiving gift from the executive producer, Mr. Stephen Weston. Which was followed by our Twitter clue, which also, thank you, Stephen. Um, (laughs) It's just these show titles. Of the I Sing, The Boyfriend, Bye Bye Birdie, Whorehouse, and Phantom. Dun-dun-dun! Mysterious. And then... The Insta clue was Donna McKechnie as Cassie in a chorus line. What? Which was followed by my blog post of five musical flops by Charles Strauss. Yes. And our fifth and final clue, which is coming at you right now, is J.K. Simmons and Marion Seldes both played featured roles in the original production of this musical. All right. I think we should give it to them. Yeah, drum roll, please. (laughs) Annie too. Miss Hannigan's Revenge. So this is a real show, ladies and gentlemen. It is a real show. Like, if you think that this is a made-up title, this is not. Uh, This show never made it to Broadway, although all the posters and marquee were up. Like, there are pictures of people walking in Times Square with... Annie too, Miss Hannigan's Revenge in the background. Uh, but it closed out of town. It did. It closed out of town, which I think this is our first one we're talking about that closed out of town, isn't it? Yeah, special milestone here. Hey. Okay, so Hannigan's Revenge is music by Charles Strauss, lyrics by Martin Sharon, and book by Thomas Meehan, which is all the original um, creatives from Annie which is what tonight is based on. Um, So I'm going to give you the plot and then we're going to get into this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Here we go. Picking up off the tail end of the original story, Congresswoman Marietta Christmas tells Daddy Warbucks it is illegal for an unmarried man to adopt an 11-year-old girl and unless he marries, she will see to it that Annie is removed from his custody. So... He decides to throw a nationwide contest to find his new wife. That's the natural conclusion to that idea. Meanwhile, Miss Hannigan is in prison scheming for revenge. She sees the contest and decides to disguise herself and try to win. She soon escapes prison. Somehow, it changed nightly. I mean, at one point, she jumped off a boat, but there you go. (laughs) She then finds a girl that looks identical to Annie and successfully sneaks into the contest. She kidnaps the real Annie and replaces her with the doppelganger. It all leads to a convoluted climax of chasing and wrestling and arresting and a you meddling kids parallel as we get slightly close to a happily ever after. So, yeah. Real grown-up stuff. So grown-up. I mean, this show when it premiered, is very dark, 
for a show. It's real dark. That is meant to be a sequel to one of the most beloved family-friendly musicals of all time. Yes. And we should start there. So their whole goal was to create the grown-up version of Annie. Well, I look, at this point, Andrea McArdle was almost 30 years old. So Annie herself was very grown right. up. And what's interesting to me is that they don't just skip ahead to Annie being adult. No, right? they, they pick sh- up right where they left off. Well, and, ev- and eventually, when the show becomes multiple versions down, they literally at- begin the show with the closing number to the first one. But they didn't start there. It, it took them a while to figure out. It did, yeah. yeah. But um, And they... They really wanted it to become its own thing. I One thing that I read consistently is that the entire creative team was so concerned about how their contemporaries judged them for Annie the Musical. These are guys who had worked on a prolific other projects. I mean, Charles oh, Strauss yeah. had written Bye Bye Birdie. He had written, just before this happened, he had written Rags you know, which was almost an opera on Broadway um, right. in a million other shows. And uh, Thomas Meehan had been a book writer for a lot of fantastic things. And Martin Charnin had been involved with some really serious projects. So for one of their most successful musicals ever to be Annie, I mean, at face value, you know, you should look back and be like, yeah, I wrote Annie, but, you know. Oh, yeah. Like, just to give everybody an idea. Annie the Musical ran from 1977 to 1983 after 2,377 performances on Broadway. Right. And it had a cost of 800000 but made a profit of $20 million. And that's not including the $9.5 million movie sale. Yes, which was huge. Martin Charney and Charles Strauss like made out like bandits on that deal. Like... Totally. So like, look, take your money and run. You know what I mean? But there was this sense from the community that they had kind of taken a cheapskate way out, you know, and that they hadn't created great work, which I don't I arguably would say they are wrong and just, well, you know, but hurt that they didn't do it. Right. (laughs) That's really how it feels. 100 percent. That was sitting in the back of their minds as they decided to dive into Annie, too. And so they really wanted to create a gritty musical that was realistic and adult and spoke to that fan base. Although I don't know that that fan base existed, but in their heads it did, you know? Yeah. Well, and they kind of they kind of caught themselves. I mean, but I remember reading that Martin Charnin, who not only wrote the lyrics, but directed the show, um, you know, under the... um, mentorship of Mike Nichols, which we'll get to later because he was one of the producers of this um, and supervised it. The the first Annie uh, on closing night, he announced Annie too. So in 1983, at closing yep. night, he comes on stage and he's like, oh, we're doing a sequel. So yep. even before this happened, you know, he had already put it out into the universe. And I had also read, this is definitely real. The movie cast, the movie ended up flopping, but um, I think it's universal. Columbia Universal, who did Annie, they optioned sequel rights to it, you know? Mm. And I think they signed a lot of the cast. I know Eileen Quinn, who played Annie in the movie, had in her clause that she had to do X amount of sequels should the studio decide she was young enough. I actually found an article that was written by a New York Times reporter, 
And it seemed to be that he was invited to be a part of the rehearsal process. Which is crazy. To document the rehearsal process. So the first day that the cast gets together in New York to start rehearsals for this DC out-of-town tryout, they had a bunch of press there because they were doing photos and all that kind of stuff. Right. Press. And then they only invited two people from that press group to stay and listen to the table read. No one had heard this. They had given hints everywhere about like there was going to be this big reveal and secret and the thing. And so they invited these two reporters to stay and listen to the table read. And he quoted the creatives and cast. Uh, so obviously must have had a tape recorder somewhere because he he has quotes right. in this article. But after the table read, the first person to speak about misgivings was Strauss. He immediately was like, this is not going to work. Right. I don't think we should do this. This is a bad idea. And he had a lot of of concerns about doing well, it. And he had already written Bring Back Birdie, which had fallen right. in 1981. <laughs> so, like, he had been down this path before. Yeah. And, I mean, and then you had Loudon, who was like, um, I'm a little concerned about the fact that, you know, I had three songs in Annie, and it was great. Just to be clear, sorry, she played Miss Hannigan in right. the original cast and now they're bringing her back to play Miss Hannigan again as the lead Miss Hannigan's revenge yeah and she was like oh I didn't realize like how heavy this was gonna be for me I'm not sure this is the right course of action right (laughs) like express concerned about about it which is interesting you know because if you're being asked to helm a musical and you're like I don't think this is the right choice right I mean that's that's a pretty big deal. And like, uh, no one loved the table read from what I can understand. Meehan was all in, you know, and I don't know. I just, I mean, it Martin didn't sound good. has been the cheerleader of this project. Yes. Of all time. I mean, I think he's the driving force in the major glue. But yeah, they built... They built a show called Annie 2 with a subtitle to be a star vehicle for Dorothy Loudon as Miss Hannigan, which yeah. I and don't... it cost $7 million to make. <laughs> well, because they were going to Broadway. I mean, they had already booked a Broadway theater. They had kicked right. out, for our diehard fans that have discovered us on other people's podcasts, right. we talked about Me and My Girl. Me and My Girl, which was a big hit on Broadway at the Marquise Theater, was forced to close to make room for Annie 2, Miss Hannigan's Revenge. Right. They did their which is insane. They did the backers audition, which is like, hey, producers, give us money on stage at the Marquee Theater in front of the set of the mansion of me and my girl. I used to have that video from my Broadway bootleg days of literally the cast sitting on chairs being like, We're we're gonna sing some Annie too for you, like on the me and my girl set. So it's crazy. I mean, there was so much hype for this show. Oh, they yeah. They really Everyone wanted it to happen. Everyone was anticipating it. They had so much money behind it. And everyone, the minute the script came out and everybody heard it aloud, everyone went, ah, I don't know about this, right? Yeah. Because it was so dark. Like, And this even ended up in the, the final soundboard recording that I listened to. But like, Hannigan sings a song that's like her big like explanation of who she is as a character song, right? And it's this show-stopping piece and it's this power ballad and it's really like 
almost Patty Lapone-esque. And it's all about how apparently she had a daughter who oh. died. Yeah, we'll get... And, yeah. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. Yeah. I mean, you got to make your villain sympathetic. I get it. Especially if they're going to be your title character. But wow, that was... It like really took a left turn. Um, And I, I just found it really... It didn't sound like Annie when I was listening to it. No. Even the opening number where they actually like steal lines from Annie. Right. But put it on a different m- melody. It it just felt bizarre. It so, felt like someone was trying to parody it. So for our listeners, Christina's referencing, there is a famous soundboard recording. I think it's from Closing Night um, in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center where the show tried out. And... Um, the show was rewritten a lot while it was at the Kennedy Center, but once they knew they weren't going to Broadway, it wasn't happening. They pulled the plug. Uh, Charles Strauss, uh, you know, Thomas Meehan and um, Martin Charnin got together and said, look, we have an A-list cast. I mean, when J.K. Simmons and Marion Seltz are <laughs> in featured roles in the show, and Dorothy Loudon was a huge Broadway star, you know, it, yeah. You have these people, you have $7 million on stage of sets, of costumes, of orchestrations. They said, let's rewrite this entire thing and try to fix a lot of the problems as a, as a starting point for the next production. But so we can see it instead of, because they knew, because clearly they had written the show that went to that table read and thought it, you know, someone thought it was a good idea, Right. They all seemed to think it was a good idea until they heard it out loud. And so that's what they were like. We have an audience. We have orchestrations. We have all of this stuff. Let's see if we can get it right. And so, Christina, you listened to really Annie 2 2.0 because the song you're referencing, But You Go On, which is one of my favorite show songs from the show. It's a beautiful song. It's still, it's one of the few songs that's still in what we now call Annie Warbucks today. It's one of the ones that survived. Um, Right. But at that point, like you said, like she talks about her kid dying and, but she's also like created a fake character to try to trick daddy Warbucks. So is it, did the kid actually die? Is she lying? And if she's lying, this is even darker. Like, right. It's also confusing to me. Like what happened to grace? Because they kind like she's in the recording. She's yeah, she's in the show. But they don't like I was like, I remember at the end of Annie that like Grace and Daddy Warbucks were like in it to win it. Okay. And then the like I'm confused. So <laughs> when this show started previews, it opened with a familiar, it's a row of beds. It looks like the orphanage, but it's a women's prison. And, you know, just like Annie sneaks out in the the Mr. Bundles bin. I think Hannigan sets a fire and she escapes dressed as a fireman or there's some conflicting stories of how she escapes from this prison, which was a real prison in Greenwich village. And that's a story for another day. We had a women's prison in New York. She escapes and all of this stuff happens. And daddy Warbucks is like busy with his taxes and his financials and, you know, then he finds out he has to get married, right? And for whatever reason, Grace is not the option. Like, that's not something... Which is where I'm confused. Like, you've already lost me. And he's holding, like, this huge competition to, like, compete to be 
which is not surprising because didn't they do that in the first one with her parents? Like, yeah, it changes a little bit by the time they close. Um, and I think, well, it was my understanding that by the time they got to like second week of previews, they had already lost Hannigan being in prison. Right. At that point, so then that was she, already gone. She jumped off a boat to Argentina, like, <laughs> and swam back to New York. That's that's what it became. That's quite impressive. Like, scene two was also gone. Yeah, they cut the whole tax thing, so it opens with "Tomorrow Is Now," which is the song that's literally just song titles from the first one. Like, yes, lyrics like "All along something was missing. It was missing by a mile. We were never fully dressed because we didn't have a smile. Didn't have a smile. Like, no, you didn't have a smile. I, and I was listening to. It, I was like, why aren't we just singing the song? <laughs> yeah, it's corny, but yeah, um, yeah, which is fine. I mean, look, I expect corny in an Annie musical as well and then you get to like the second song and all of a sudden it is like dark depression we all went to a deep well of despair so okay i think we should pause for a moment and focus on the recording you listened to because i think yes. there's a lot of really great stuff there to talk about before we move on to its life after dc right because okay. clearly this wasn't a successful production <laughs> so what what did you like about any of the music that you listened to I actually liked a lot of the music. Okay. It just, my confusions came from like the actual plot okay. side of things and how the songs lined up with the plot. Annie's song was probably my least favorite, but it was very Annie-like. And here's right. the thing. I'm not a huge fan of the original musical. I was, I was one of the kids who watched the Annie movie and wanted to be Carol Burnett. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. So like. <laughs> yeah, you did. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not an Annie fan. Right. And when we said we were going to do this show, I was like, oh no. But then I started reading about it. I was like, oh, this is fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, the reason it's fascinating is because the music is really beautiful. Yeah. In so many ways. I mean, there are some amazing songs in the show, especially for the adults. Oh, yeah. In the show, like, I should specify that. And I can see how they would make a great musical. The problem is, is that it doesn't line up with this, like, really over-the-top plot that they have going and the characters that already exist in the zeitgeist of musical theater right. with an expectation and a point of view. And so that was why I had such a hard time listening to it. Is oh, because course. I knew what I was supposed to be listening to. Right. And it was interesting because reading this article um, that was like a documentary of the making of, he talks about opening night in DC mm -hmm. and there being 700 children there to see Annie too. Right. Oh gosh. I can't even imagine. And none of them saw Annie. They didn't see the other orphans. They didn't see anything. And they were just sad in velvet dresses. Yeah. It's so crazy because even in that 2.0 version, mm -hmm. like Annie has a beautiful song called Changes, which is still right. on the show today. And then she has some iteration of they rewrote during DC Alone, her like big ballad in Act Two, which she's trapped in the trunk. They rewrote the lyrics, complete new lyrics, at least three times. And yeah, so I don't. I've, I listened yeah. to two versions of it for okay. sure. I don't know which versions okay. they ultimately were, but even so, 
some of those lyrics are also really dark for a child. Uh, one set of lyrics is like, this is my very darkest place. Uh, this is my, or uh, I don't know, something awful situation, like yeah. really scary lyrics. But that's Annie. That's what she exists in the show. Other than when she plays Kate McGuire, which is the other orphan. That's the who, doppelganger. The doppelganger. Uh, yes. <laughs> she is fun. She is a lot of fun. When she argues with Annie, one of my favorite songs in Annie 2 is You, You, You Could Be Annie 2. And Which, for anyone who is wondering, Bobby is famous for singing said song on the YouTubes I think I'm the and o- is on many fan sites. I think I'm the only person who has ever sang that song. The melody still exists in Annie Warbucks, but it's, and it's sung by the villain, but it's got different lyrics. But I love that soundboard because it starts with like Dorothy Loudon as Hannigan, like being like, hey, you kid. And the kid's like, what do you want? Like, oh, yeah, it's so funny. What are you going to make of it? And it's like, that's the Annie we wanted the whole time. And the fun of Hannigan being like, I'm not going to kill this little girl, which was part of the plot at one point in this musical. It was. Uh, Of her just being like, yeah, you're going to be Annie, too. I'm going to dye your hair. I'm going to put you in a red dress and you're going to say, I want you to be my mommy. To me, I'm like, I could get behind this scene like this scene. Totally works. This one works. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, especially like in the world of Annie, it makes sense. Like we're, and you know, it's like you're watching Pepper try and play Annie. Yes. Which is fun. And it is fun. At first I thought that's what was happening. No, no. I thought it was Pepper and I was like, oh, that would be interesting, but it wasn't. And so, yeah, I don't know. It was listening to the soundboard recording, it just like brought up a lot of weird feelings and like then diving farther into the world of how they got to DC. Right. Like they didn't even have a full tech. No. Because the sets weren't there. The costumes weren't there. So they never got a full tech. They never got a full dress. Opening night was the first time they'd seen the show all put together. Oh yeah. And apparently 20 minutes in, they're all sitting in the stage manager booth and are like, oh, no, this is not what we had in the room. We have to rewrite the show. Yeah. <laughs> like, immediately started rewriting the show. I don't even know if they finished watching it, which is insane. It's insane that you... How did no one, like, think about it in the room? But I, it speaks to what happens. I mean, we talked about this with Big, where all these magical moments can happen in a rehearsal room where right. you don't have to worry about sets. You don't have to worry about costumes. And then the minute you add all of these big things that you tried to do on stage, you lose the magic. Oh, totally. Totally. Well, so this thing, even though they 2.0 it, doesn't go to Broadway. And they decide they're going to take it back to the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut, which is actually where... So they Martin Charnin was interviewed a lot during this process because, again, cheerleader, also the director and the, the lyricist, he, at one point when it was moving, they were like, so what do you what do you think? You know, Broadway got canceled. You're going to go to Goodspeed. And he's like, well, we started at Goodspeed with the original Annie. Then we went to the Kennedy Center. And then we went to Broadway. He's like, we didn't... He was blaming it on the fact he's like, we should have done that the first time. You know, yeah. we should have done it. And granted, Goodspeed is smaller and it's a nonprofit and... They probably would have spent less money. So, yeah, they probably should have spent the time not doing it for $7 million at the Kennedy yeah. Center. They take it there. 
And it's still called Annie 2 at this point. And Miss Hannigan is still in the show when they start the workshop, but it's not Dorothy Loudon. She's been replaced with, I think, Helen Gallagher officially plays. Oh, okay. Officially plays Miss Hannigan when they start the workshop. By the end of the workshop, Miss Hannigan's not in the show anymore. So, like, no, it's a new villain. It's a new villain. Marion Selds is there. I think is Marietta Christmas. I think she becomes a different character. Yeah. By the end of that workshop. Yes. And the show becomes more like what would eventually become Annie Warbucks. It, the show evolves a lot in that Goodspeed workshop because they realize that even though Hannigan is fun, and even if you make her character smaller, you know, than it was in Hannigan's Revenge, more like it was in Annie One, you don't really need her for the show. The show needs to be about Annie and what happens next? You know, Daddy Warbucks has adopted her. So what's next for Annie in this show? And you don't need Hannigan and they can save some of the plot. So it really becomes a different show. There are some plot devices that stay, but overall, it's no longer the story of Miss Hannigan doing all this stuff. This commercial break is sponsored by Please buy our merch. Please visit www.myfavoriteflop.com today. So now it's back, but it's rewritten and it becomes Annie Warbucks. Right. And the plot has changed. Yes, it has. Well, let's just go straight to the plot of Annie Warbucks. On Christmas morning in 1933, when Child Welfare Commissioner Harriet Doyle, replacing the original Miss Hannigan as the villain, arrives on the scene to inform Daddy Warbucks he must marry within 60 days or else the child will be returned to the orphanage. Daddy Warbucks' whirlwind search for a fitting bride uncovers not only a plot by Doyle and her daughter, Sheila Kelly, to strip him of his fortune, but also his true feelings for his longtime assistant, Grace Farrell. A gaggle of cute little girls seeking parents and President Franklin D. Roosevelt return to take part in the shenanigans. Okay, so that sounds more like a sequel to Annie, right? Yeah, and it also doesn't feel all that far away from the original plot synopsis of... Miss Hannigan's Revenge. No, I mean, the conundrum is still Daddy Warbucks has to get married to keep her. It's just right. we have different villains. They come from different government organizations. And but now we have orphans, Molly, Pepper, all of them are back. And, you know, we even get FDR back. We get Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I don't That's think right. he even made an appearance in Annie to Miss Hannigan's Revenge. Not that I could find. Again, I also couldn't find them talking about Grace at all for Hannigan's Revenge, but yet they talk about her in the music. So I was that's one of the reasons why I was confused. I mean, she was um, there, but yes, anyway. Yeah. Um. So yeah, no, this definitely feels more like an Annie sequel. Right. And it feels like something anyone who was a fan of the original would enjoy and feels like the natural progression. And so, of yeah, what it could be. And they get to this while they're working at good speed. 
And, you know, this is what eventually transfers to Chicago, goes on a like a pre-Broadway tour because it was going to, again, open on Broadway. Uh, so I think it tours, you know, California and a couple places like that. And you know who musical directed that tour, right? No. Our friend Jeff Rizzo. <gasps> Jeff Rizzo. Jeff Rizzo. Of course he did. And you know <laughs> who starred, I think, as an understudy to maybe Donna McKechnie? in this? Brooks Almy. Yes, of course. There you go. Yes. Absolutely. So this show had a lot of anticipation and was going to open on Broadway. But ultimately, what ended up happening was an investor pulled out, but it opened off Broadway. And people really liked it. It just it off Broadway is different. Well, and what I understood was the intention was always to start off Broadway and then do the transfer. And you have to do the transfer to Broadway within so many days to be eligible for a Tony. Right. And it's within so many days of opening off Broadway. It's not just like making it on Broadway before the Tony cutoff. This is actually like you have to do a transfer from off Broadway to on to be able to be considered for a Tony. Um, and that was when the investor pulled out. And so they said, you know what? It's not worth trying to do if we can't get a Tony nom. Right. So we'll just leave it off Broadway where it was really successful. It ran for 200 performances. Yeah. Um, even Ben Brantley gave it good reviews and said that it was one of Strauss's best scores. Well, and it won the Outer Critics Award for Best New Musical. So... Yeah, it was interesting to me that it didn't make it to off-Broadway till 1993. Hey, that's four years because 89 yeah. is when Annie 2 happens around Christmas and then... Right, Four going years. into 1990. And then 1990, the summer of 1990 was the Goodspeed right. workshop. And then they didn't get their first shows on the road, I don't think, until 91. Right. And then, so then it didn't make it to off-Broadway till 93. So it was, a, it was another long journey. Oh, totally. To get it there. Well, and, and girls aged out. I mean, we've, we didn't mention this in the first half of the episode, but... You know, people were so excited about a sequel to Annie. There was a nationwide televised search for yep. the girl who would star in that. But even by the time they went to Goodspeed, she had gotten too old and was replaced. And right. then the girl who did it, you know, Lauren Gaffney, I think, who did it at Goodspeed, aged out by the time they got to Off-Broadway. She's a teenager now, you know. Yeah. And um, so they went through several Annies through this process just because of how long it took. That probably doesn't feel out of place by any means, considering how long the first production of Annie ran on Broadway. Right. And I'm sure they went through many children. <laughs> Lots of things. For that. But yeah, it was also interesting reading about one of the female producers talked about she was a producer on the original production of Annie and then also came into Hannigan's Revenge while they were in D.C., and one of the things that she mentioned was with Annie, the musical, they hit the mother load. It right. was perfect timing. It was a good show. And it just captured everybody's hearts because of what was going on. They had just had Watergate happen and all this other stuff. And so everybody wanted this family-friendly, loving musical. Right. And fast forward from 1977 when Annie the musical opens right now we're 1990 well when revenge comes out it's 89 right and there's a lot going on in the world that like no one cares about nanny 2 no. musical <laughs> you know you have the berlin wall coming down 
And like, if we want to talk about what was going on with kids, the Game Boy was released that year. I mean, like, who cares about Annie when you can... Right. Like, it's so far out of the minds of children at this point. You know, I say that after we talked about earlier how there were 700 children who showed up to opening night in D.C. But that's because of the infamous film. Right. Well, that's how I knew Annie. Well, and that's the thing. So I was born not to date myself, but to date myself in 1985. So in 1993, I was seven. Granted, I was a little boy, so I probably wasn't the target for this. But I don't think Annie was in my universe. I remember being a kid and my mom talking about Annie because I have older brothers and sisters who would have very much been part of the Annie zeitgeist and the. 70s into early 80s. And I was like, Who, what is that? What is that movie? I don't think I discovered it till I was in my teens. The movie, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I enjoyed Carol Burnett. I would have been a prime audience member for Annie Warbucks in 1993, right? Seven years old and eight years old. And I, that Annie wasn't even in my universe. That was not. And I like musicals. You know what I mean? You know, it's int- we'll never talk about it other than when I bring up Annie on this podcast because Annie <laughs> was a big fat hit. I mean, do you think Annie works as a show or do you think it's a nostalgia piece at this point? I mean, I have opinions, which I'll share in a moment, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts because I know you're not over the moon about the Annie universe. I think that the the original show works okay as a musical. It's not one that I want to spend my time to go see. Right. I really like the film, again, because I am in love with what Carol Burnett does in right. that film. I think it works great as a show. And it's a great show to be utilized for regional houses and community theaters, even children's theater programs. Of course, it should be done. Right. right? Annie Warbucks, sure. Why not? You know, especially if you've already had Annie in your season. Right. Do Annie Warbucks. That makes sense. But the idea of creating a grown-up Annie is bizarre to me, unless you are actually following adult Annie. Yeah, and that, it's it's interesting. And who knows what went on in like creative meetings? Like when they decided that the initial plot was going to be what it is. You know, who knows if they were like, let's make her a teenager, let's make her in her twenties. Uh, I my feelings on Annie the original. You know, I saw the latest revival directed by, uh, you know, James Lapine. And um, it was, it's so interesting because Martin Charnin has directed like every major production, tour, anniversary, revival, except for that one. And mm. it was different. It was, I mean, and you and I saw a very special one that Martin Charnin directed. So yes. we, we saw half of it. Uh, but yes, it's a show that I think when the cast is a list and when it's directed well and it's choreographed well, and it has the money on stage, I think it hits all of the marks and knowing what got cut because the original Annie changed drastically at good speed. Like, in fact, Annie was played by a different actress. It was a different show. They really made it work when it when when all guns are it's i don't think it's a foolproof show i think in community theater you got kids on stage it's fine but i I think it's a show that needs a lot of pieces to go together right i I think annie warbucks the official sequel that you can rent and license and 
the end product, I think is a better show than anyone. I think musically, I think there are better songs. I think it's more fun. I think the music is more, I'm not say advanced, but I feel like, feels like the creative team has matured a bit, but it Mm -hmm. still feels part of the universe. The score to Annie too, though, like Annie 2, Miss Hannigan's Revenge doesn't work, but that's probably some of, I think, the most complex music in the Annie universe, you know? Oh, it was really interesting, again, to reference this article I found. Martin Sharnan talks about how he left DC early before they actually closed there right. and came back to New York to get started on things. One of the things being, let me go hire a bunch of orphans. Right, um, right. And like he wanted to rewrite, but he took a day for himself and he got up in the morning and he went to a coffee shop, sat down, had a cup of coffee, read the newspaper. And as he was coming out, there was a sax, I think it was a saxophonist on the street playing for money. And he was playing tomorrow. And he goes up to him and he's like, how often do you play that? And the musician responded with every day. I love it. It's my favorite song. And he said, I wrote it. They have a conversation. And at one point, the musician says, Annie, too. What happened there, man? Yeah. And it's and he, it was how the article ended. And it was such a great way to sum it up. Or like even people who were fans, fans of Annie and fans of the music of Annie. Right. Right. Like, look, it's not my favorite score in the world, but. Tomorrow, you can't not love. No. You're never fully dressed without a smile. Yeah. Yes. Hard Knock Life. How many times has that been parodied? Or it's perfect. Put into rap songs. So. Right. Like it's it's perfect, beautiful music, right? Especially no, they're, when they're, it's taken out of context. It's gorgeous music. Right. And I would say that Hannigan's Revenge also is gorgeous music. It's just gorgeous music in a different way. Yeah, it's, I think, had the show, well, here's the thing, is that plot would never work because you need Annie one to make that plot work. You know what yeah. I mean? But yeah. if, if you had told the story of a, of a woman who had been wronged, you know, this anti-hero escaping from, I don't, maybe there's a world where that score can get, you know, put on to <laughs> some new book writer because uh, songs like But You Go On or Coney Island, Coney Island never made it into Annie Warbucks. And I that song is so much more complex and fun than a lot of Annie One. I love Coney Island. And uh, it's just kind of lost to the ages. And there, there are other ones like um, Just Let Me Get Away With This One, which I think is Anne Hannigan's first big number in the one you listen to, uh, which is a lot of fun, but also kind of dark. And she's like, Yodelay, he who, get rid of Sandy yeah. too. Um, magical. Uh, but <laughs> that is not an example of the beautiful, wonderful scoring in <laughs> Hannigan's Revenge. That's that's the intro to a song that's much better than what I just put out there. <laughs> <laughs> so musical sequels. Are they a good idea? Aren't they? I, you know, and I again, I hope that we talk about many musical sequels on this podcast because I have a fetish for them. But I think, you know, us, Stephen, our brilliant executive producer, allowing us to cover the show 
this season, I think is important because we have talked about Charles Strauss on the show. We went we a Broadway musical. We have talked about uh, the Peanuts musicals as being based on comic strips, which Annie is also based on comic strips, you know, serials, a yeah, radio I mean, serial. It's like, a legacy at this point. It's a legacy. So it touches on a lot of different things we've talked about in season one. And speaking of the serials, like I think if musical sequels will ever work, and I hope that one day they do, because if Marvel can create all the movies, we can have an Annie universe. Like Annie probably had the most going for it than I think a lot of the other sequels that have existed. Exactly. And there's so much to mine. I mean, it's a big... Like this is this is a show that doesn't quit. Well, the comic strip started in 1924. Oh my, that's insane! And, and then didn't get canceled until 2010. Wait, are you serious? I'm dead serious. I had no idea they still made co- any comic strips. Apparently, so that means every week there was a new story. Really, about Annie? Well, and it was a popular radio show. I mean, everybody's favorite Christmas movie, a the Christmas best. story. Is yes. he's listening to Little Orphan Annie with his decoder ring, right? Yes. And he needs to get his Red Rider BB gun. 100%. Uh, so that's even before the musical came into existence. Uh, an extremely popular comic strip and radio show. And then you get Annie the Musical, right? Right. Well, even before that, in the 30s, there was oh. a series of films based on a comic strip. Right. 100%. So that... It builds up to why you would turn this into a musical to begin with. It makes the most sense, right? Well, and the success of it is insane. You know, it ran for 2,377 performances and made a profit of $20 million. No, and even though the movie wasn't technically a hit, like, it was huge. And so many famous people played Annie... In those original productions, I mean... Including, but not limited to, Sarah Jessica Parker. I mean, infamously, like, every time they do an Annie thing, she gets dragged out and she always comes, too. My favorite thing ever was during Hillary Clinton's last political campaign, there was the Broadway for Hillary concert, uh-huh. and it's Sarah Jessica Parker and Andrea McArdle singing Tomorrow together. Oh, it I is, am so sad. I've never seen that. Oh, I will find it for you. It's got to exist. Cannot wait. So good. But yeah. I mean, not just not just Annie, the amount of Miss Hannigans. Oh, and Roosters and... Yeah. yeah. I think Sally Struthers was a Miss Hannigan on Broadway. Come on. I mean, and so was Nell Carter. Like, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Nell Carter famously did it, and they wrote her a new song. Oh, my gosh. I mean, insane. Insane. Jane Lynch, who I saw do it. I actually, (laughs) I think that would be really funny. I I think I would enjoy Annie with Jane Lynch as Miss Hannigan. I I really did, but... (laughs) I bet. It suits her. And, like, we've had several movie versions. Obviously, the most infamous, the original film... And then um, there was a made-for-television one in the late 90s. Oh, with um, Kathy Bates and Kristen Chenoweth and Alan Cumming. Yeah. And then you had the 2014 film that was produced by Will Smith and Jay-Z with Jamie Foxx as Daddy Warbucks. Oh, yeah. With an, Ivy, oh my, Cameron Diaz as Miss Hannigan. And that was all mostly new music. That, was, that had a lot of, like, 
fresh written music for that one. There was new songs. Yeah. Yeah. And that was an interesting, I did not like that movie, but I thought it was Mm. interesting to see them take the story and some of the songs and modernize it. That was fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I had a lot of fun with that. I also, I just appreciate that they show that Annie doesn't have to be the little redheaded girl with freckles. There's something about that that I enjoyed because that sense of being an orphan and needing a family is universal. It doesn't discriminate based on (laughs) skin color. You know what I mean? Well, and I, what I, what I actually love about, you know, the 1999 version as well is they famously did away with the curly hair. And so she famously just has straight hair. And so each of these movies has kind of pushed the envelope of reimagining the piece a bit, which is interesting. Because well, after 90 plus years, I feel like you'd need to. Right. Well, then, of course, NBC is doing it this Christmas on December 2nd. Right. And right. there are some uh, big names. I believe Taraji P. Henson is playing Miss Hannigan, oh. which I have been waiting my whole life. Well, ever since I like saw her in Benjamin Button. Yeah. Uh, I have been waiting for her to do a musical and I don't even know if she really can sing. I mean, Hannigan doesn't have to sing. I have been waiting for this to happen. And Harry Connick Jr. is playing Daddy Warbucks. And Titus Burgess is Rooster, which is going to be ridiculous. I I think Rooster is going to sound the best. The absolute best. I hope he wails during Easy Street. And then, of course, Jane Krakowski is playing Lily, which is like... Hasn't she already done this? I probably. I don't... She has to have already played this Wasn't she an Annie? No, I don't think she was an Annie, but she did do Starlight Express with Andrea McArdle. So there you go. There it is. (laughs) Um, But this legacy, there was even a made-to-video sequel because, like I said, Columbia Universal owned the rights to the sequel as well. And they right. weren't going to make Annie 2 Miss Hannigan's Revenge a movie. So it's it's Annie 2, a royal adventure or something where she goes to England. It's really bizarre, I actually. Mean, that makes sense. How many 90s films did we see that were sequels where they ha- they were like, and now we go to England? We were obsessed in the 90s. Like, everyone's going to London. Like, You know, I reason. really wonder sometimes where it got in my head as a kid that I needed to marry a British man. Well. And then I go back and revisit all the films I watched as a kid, and I understand why. Thank you. It's it's 90s media getting to you. What a girl wants. I mean, come on. I, well, so, you know, we just mentioned. So there was another sequel, technically, you know, and that one does feature tomorrow. But I think that's it. It's not a musical. So I guess this brings up the question and there may not be an answer to this, but does a musicalized sequel ever make sense? And will it ever be successful? I think if there were ever a universe, a musical universe where it should have worked, I think Annie made the most sense of all the ones that have been done because it comes with that legacy. Mm. So many other stories have been told about Annie, about Sandy, about Daddy Warbucks. So if we've accepted that in other mediums and this musical is like a gangbusters hit, I think there's a world where one could have worked. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting to me that even the filmed version of a sequel version of Annie right. musical 
also wasn't successful. I would love for I like I, I can't stress this enough. I would love to see the Broadway musical world in regards to fandom and also it's kind of just footprint grow in the way that the Marvel universe has grown and, you know, maybe movie franchises have grown and fandom in general, because I feel like the Broadway community handicaps itself by not allowing our genre to exist beyond, you know, we like we get so weird in the Broadway world about replacements. You know what I mean? Right. Some people are like the original cast. That's it. So like if, if people feel that way about shows or the original production, like some people are weird about revivals. Like if we're yeah. that precious about stuff, will like, could a musical sequel work? Probably not, but I would love to see a world where it happened. I don't, do you feel they could work in any kind of sense of the, I mean, the only thing I can think of that currently that exists that is successful would be like the falsetto trilogy. But that also got morphed and warped into a single show. Right. So I don't know if that necessarily counts. Um, But yeah, I think that I think that part of it is that when they create the first musical, they don't set it up in a way that could lead to a sequel, right. could lead to the next step. And to bring it back to Wicked, I was listening to it and really becoming conscious of the fact that I was listening to a musical based in fantasy, pure fantasy. Mm-hmm. And that arguably the most successful musical ever created. Right. right? And it lives in the genre of fantasy. Right. With witches and wizards and an interesting political twist. And the book that it's based on has multiple books in the series. And even the musical, because they follow the book, yes, it has a great beginning, middle and end. And and I'm not necessarily wanting more as if questions were unanswered, but it sets itself up for a sequel. I mean, Wicked too. I don't. I I wonder if that's one that's ever been brought up. I mean, you know, Hairspray two almost happened. There was definitely talk. Again, you know, that's thinking, one that doesn't create the opportunity for what's next. Right. That that show specifically, or the movie doesn't. But Wicked does. I mean, Knock Knock, like Scarecrow, like mm-hmm. wh- what's next? That's the closest I feel like we get in a Broadway musical to one of the you know a cut a scene during the credits, right? <laughs> It's a credit cutscene. That's that's like, yeah, that's the closest you get. I mean. I love it personally because I love that genre. I love what you're able to do with that. I also love like multiple fantasy right. series. Um, that's a world I live in. Right. And so the fact that Stephen Schwartz wrote such an incredible score to that show to begin right. with and the idea that it could happen I just, it's exciting to me. Um, And the idea of like, would you want a show to not wrap up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the only other example I can think of in Hollywood when it comes to musicals is the High School Musical series. High School Musical 1, 2, 3. And those musicals don't really leave on a cliffhanger, but they're in high school. So as long as they're still in high school and we, we have those characters... You know, I think that was one of the downfalls of Greece too. Is Greece one ends with everyone graduating high school? So right. if Greece two is set at Rydell High again, 
it's like Saved by the Bell, the new class. And nobody wants to see that except for Bobby. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, had Saved they been... Saved by the Bell, the new class. You and like, Steven would be its super fans. <laughs> but, like, that's kind of what Grease 2 feels like. And there are 5,000 reasons why that movie doesn't work. But... Um, 27 years married this year. I'm just mentioning that. Is that is that Zach and Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kelly. Zach and Kelly. Um, I have not been watching the reboot. You know, I think that w- high school musical, the universe exists and is successful because we're still following the new TV show. Oh gosh, well, that exists too. But that that's see, that's you know, talk about expanding the universe. That's like my dream. I just wish it wasn't just happening with high school musical. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's about finding the right show that allows for that. There are certain right. shows that should never be like love never dies did not need to happen. No, because you the know, show ends and it has a prologue already when Raul's old. Like we just don't need it. But, but wicked. I think you're onto something. Wicked. I think could be that the problem with wicked. And this has been <laughs> the issue with wicked since it started is that it was only meant to generate money for the movie and the musical just took off. I mean, right. Overwhelmingly took off. And so they haven't been able to make the film because the musical is so popular. It's also one of the biggest reasons why it's never been released to regionals. Not that regionals would be able to make it happen because of the tech side of everything. Oh, but I will see those shows. But we will go. Um, you know, but that's why the rights have never been released because they need the rights so they can make the film. Right. <laughs> and so now they're making the film. I think that maybe it opens up this world of creating the next book in the series. Well, that, that would really make the sun come out tomorrow. Well, that's our episode on Miss Hannigan's Revenge. I mean, which is hashtag kind of the best title for a Broadway show. Aye, aye, aye. Anyway. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for... Uh, I would say humoring me. I know our executive producer humored me. I think Christina humored me. Uh, But I wanted to get this one out there. You know, it's a show that a lot of people have probably heard of uh, because it's so iconically a Broadway flop and it's ridiculous. But I don't know if a lot of people have delved far into learning about it. And now all of you... No, and look, I rolled my eyes the minute we said we were doing it. And then once I got into it, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. It's a fascinating piece of history and certainly a piece of history that we as a community should learn from. Right. Well, so now all of you, including Christina, can be like, I know all about Annie too, Miss Hannigan's Revenge. (laughs) Anyway, Christina, where can they find us on the interwebs? Well, you can find us on all the social media at My Favorite Flop, as well as our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com, where you will be able to find all of Bobby's amazing blog posts, as well as our merch store. I know, ladies and gentlemen, it's almost Christmas. Like, if you haven't bought Christmas presents for people yet, I don't know what would be better than a My Favorite Flop sweatshirt. It's Especially chilly for there. your flopaholic friends. Right? Like, come on. It's got the definition on the back. Or on the front. Depending on which style you get. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Christina, should I give them the clue for the next episode? Heck yeah, let's go. All right, kids. 
The first clue for episode 21 is this. This musical picked up more Tony nominations than it had actual performances. Ooh. That's, that's got to be some kind of record. Like, I would think so. I would be surprised if there are, if there's more than one show that fits that description. I, I'm not sure that there is. All right, Christina, do you have any parting words for our listeners? I'm reading a book about defying gravity. It's impossible to put down. But um. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye.